postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church podcast. Uh, super stoked to have you here for part three of The Art of missional living. Now, before I switch over to that, um, I did want to share another resource that you guys might really enjoy. When it comes to talking about rearticulating the message, the gospel, the kingdom to secular culture, uh, a lot of times one of the things that we are lacking is an example of what that could look like, uh, an example of what it what it sounds like to talk about the gospel in a way that isn't constrained to the models and frameworks that uh, we are used to being religious people or being Adventist people. So how do you talk about the gospel? How do you talk about Jesus? How do you talk about, you know, all of these different aspects of a person's spirituality uh, with with a new language and uh, with a new prose? Those things are necessary when it comes to rearticulating the gospel for emerging Western culture. Uh, now, of course, you guys know this already. I, I don't have all the answers. For me, a lot of this is an exploration, a journey, a um, an attempt, really, rather than uh, a foolproof answer of any sort. Uh, and, and so with that said, uh, I do want to invite you, if you haven't heard of it or if you haven't listened before, to check out the um, podcast that I am co-hosting with Joel Brown, who is, um, he's not a pastor or a theologian or anything. He is a, uh, he is a business coach uh, who has a really, really big um, uh, online following. And he's been doing this for a really long time and he's become quite good at what he does. And uh, so the two of us got together. Uh, and decided, hey, let's let's do a podcast. He's a, he's a faith, he's a believer in Jesus. He's a he's a faith person, and um, yeah, we just talked about you know what would it look like to take the message of of the gospel, the message of scripture, um, and and of course we we're both Adventists, so you know we're looking at this through that lens and say you know how do we rearticulate this and share this with uh, a culture that is seeking and searching and sort of scratching in the dark for answers, but for whom the traditional language, the traditional vernacular, the traditional approach of explaining truth or explaining the different elements of truth uh, just won't work. Uh, and so what we actually have to do is we have to sit down and say, okay, so how do we talk about God in a way that doesn't sound churchy? And how do we talk about Jesus and the gospel and salvation and death and hell and prophecy? How do, how do we actually talk about these things uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that sounds human and that does not depend on a person learning an incredible amount of, of new language uh, in order to, to fully appreciate what's being said? And so um, what we did is, yeah, we sat down and we decided, let's do this new podcast together. We titled it The Unknown God because this is essentially what um, Paul did when he was preaching in Athens, which our series on the art of missional living is focusing on. Um, he spoke about the unknown God and sort of reframed the, his approach to the gospel, which he wouldn't have done this with a Jewish audience, but for a pagan audience, he said, hey, you know, let's, um, let, let me introduce you to Jesus, the unknown God, um, the altar to the unknown God. And so... What does it look like to do that in the modern age? And, and what does it look like to speak to people who are impacted by things like post-modernity or gene editing or multi-planetary migration or transhumanism uh, or ecological, pursuit of ecological justice, social justice, LGBT IQ justice, uh, decolonization. Uh, what is the language that's being used? What are the frameworks that people are familiar with that we can then take the gospel and, and frame it within a language that makes sense to them? Uh, and so that's essentially what that podcast is all about. If you haven't heard it or had a chance to explore it, 
make sure you head over to theunknowngod.com. That's theunknowngod.com. You can get access to the podcast there. You can also find it on any podcast host that you like, whether it's Spotify or iTunes or whatever. Um, just look it up. But if you go to theunknowngod.com, you'll have access to everything there. It'll take you to all the links and you'll be able to see uh, what the different episodes are in the different seasons as well. We're just wrapping up season two right now, which has been a lot of fun. Now, again, look, don't take this as, hey, I'm going to listen to this podcast so I can figure out the way of rearticulating the gospel to the culture. You're not going to find the way. You're just going to find a way, which happens to be uh, what I do. And it's definitely not infallible, but hopefully it's enough to kind of nudge in the right direction, kind of give a, a, a tangible example of what we're actually talking about when we talk about rearticulation of the gospel. And um, and hopefully you find it really useful in your own spiritual journey as well. All right, with that said, I'm going to um, turn this over to The Art of Missional Living, part three. So we are in Acts chapter 17. Now, I've, I've got quite a lot to cover today, and I want to do it quickly so that it doesn't take forever, but at the same time, I can't do it so quick that it completely flies over your head. So I've got a, a fine line to walk there. So please pray for me as I go. But we've been in Acts chapter 17 where we're looking at Paul's missionary journey in Athens. And if you have missed the first two sermons, make sure you go on our website, jundalapsdachurch.com.au. And you can get the previous sermons. You can follow the link to our YouTube channel. You can get the previous sermons because I'm not going to repeat everything I've said there. But we have learned about three primary lessons from Paul so far in Acts chapter 17. Paul has ended up in the city of Athens, a city of pagan philosophers, and he begins to share the gospel there. And so we've been looking at this really unique scenario in the, in the New Testament and saying, what can we learn about reaching our city from the way in which Paul engaged the Athenians? And we've learned three primary lessons. The first one is that in order to reach a city, you have to leave the comfort of the building and you have to go where people are. That's the first lesson that we've learned. The second lesson that we've learned is that Paul was provoked by the idolatry of the city, but he did not allow his provocation to turn into condemnation. Right? He didn't sit there and, and, and start railing and accusing and yelling and, and judging the Athenians. He allowed his provocation to become fuel for respectful missional engagement. There's a big difference between those two. And the third big lesson that we've learned is that reaching our city is a partnership between us and God. God is not going to do the work for us, but likewise, we can't do the work without him. And so when we work with him and in his way, his spirit moves in ways that are absolutely amazing. Now, these are the three main lessons that we saw in the very first sermon. So far, I've preached two sermons in this series. So these are the three main lessons that we saw in the very first sermon. But then in sermon two, what we began doing was we began exploring these in depth, starting with the third one. So I'm actually working my way backwards now. So we started with the third one, this whole idea of partnership with God. And the question that I asked in that sermon is, what does this look like in practical terms? What does it look like to partner with God? What does it look like to work with God to reach others? And so, in that sermon, we broke that down, and we saw three basic points. The first, don't burn bridges by focusing on differences, but build bridges by focusing on common ground. That was the first lesson that we saw from the way in which Paul addressed the Athenians. He began with common ground as opposed to differences. He looked at their idol, the idol to the unknown God, and he says something really weird. He says, I've come to tell you about him today. He didn't stand there and say, that God doesn't exist. In fact, none of your gods, they're all false. No, no, no. He said, hey, you know that one right there, the unknown God, the one that you worship ignorantly without knowing? I'm going to tell you about him. He's found common ground, and he's built a bridge to the culture. Secondly, don't approach people from a top-down posture. Go side by side instead. A top-down posture, this is this is generally speaking, the way in which most people engage other people, they engage them with a top-down posture, which assumes that when I am reaching someone, I'm up here or there down there. 
I have all the answers and they know nothing and they must listen to me. This approach is offensive. It doesn't work. Side by side assumes, hey, we're both seeking God. Let's seek him together. I don't have all the answers. I know some things. Maybe you know some things. Let's go on a journey together. Let's have a friendship of discovery. All right. This is called a truth-seeking relationship as opposed to a top-down, which is a truth-telling relationship, which doesn't work very well. And the last thing that we saw from Paul is that we are to become students of our city and our neighbors so that we can share the gospel in ways that make sense to them. So these are the things that we've seen so far in exploring how Paul is reaching his city and how Paul is connecting with people in his city. He's journeying slowly with them. He's journeying gently with them, bringing them to a knowledge of Jesus. But these supporting points, especially this last one, brings us back to lesson number two, the big lessons from the very first sermon. I want to focus on this one today. And what I want to do, not only in today's sermon, but in the next two, is I want to show you what this actually looks like in real life. What does it actually look to do what Paul is doing and do it in our city? I'm going to give you guys some examples I'm not going to get too complicated because this stuff can, you know, it can get pretty complicated. So I'm going to keep it simple. But my goal is that by the time this series is finished, you will be able to replicate everything Paul did in your own way, according to your own personality and your own unique gifts. So the second lesson again, provocation. Don't allow your provocation to turn into condemnation. Let it lead you into missional engagement with others. So let's zoom in on this lesson and see what we can learn from Paul. I'm in Acts chapter 17. I'm just going to reread a little bit of the story from verses 22 through 23. It says this. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription in it, to the unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I am telling you about. So Paul is standing in the Areopagus, a center of pagan thought, in the center of Greece, one of Greece's most popular cities, the city of Athens. And he's speaking with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now notice what this means. What it means is that Paul's audience, they are not Jews. Sorry, that came out a little bit smaller than it looked on my computer screen. <laughs> it says they are not Jews. Paul's audience are not Jews. They don't know the Bible. They never heard of Moses. They never heard of Isaiah. They haven't read the Ten Commandments. They don't know anything about clean or unclean foods. They never heard the stories of the Exodus or Samson or Daniel. They do not believe in one God. The Stoics and the uh, Epicureans were polytheists. They believed in many gods or no God or in a universal energy that had no personality. They didn't believe in a personal God like the Bible teaches. And their view of man and the spirit world were totally different to what the Bible teaches. So Paul is surrounded now in the Areopagus by a group of people who do not share a single assumption with him. So if Paul stands in the Areopagus and he says, let's turn to the book of Isaiah like you would in a synagogue, people would be like, what in the world is he talking about? So clearly, Paul recognizes he needs a different approach because he wants to introduce them to Jesus. And of course, here comes the final point. They have no clue who Jesus is. How do you do this? How does Paul do this? And I think the more practical question for us this morning is how do we do this? Because it turns out 
Athens is not that different to Jundalup. According to local statistics, 33% of Jundalup identifies as secular, which means they don't claim any religion. Now, there's about a 60% that identify as Catholic. But you have to be careful a lot of times with these statistics because when people identify as Catholics, you have to parse a person who is a committed Catholic from a person who is a cultural Catholic. In fact, religion news tells us that today, Catholics who attend weekly, that means they go to their church weekly, make up only one-third of those who identify as Catholic. Many people who say, I'm Catholic, never ever go to church. They're actually secular themselves, but maybe their parents were Catholic, or maybe, the, 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 you know, maybe they come from a, a part of the world where there's many Catholics, and they just culturally identify with that label. So when we take this into consideration, we can conservatively say that it's more like 50% of Jundalup that's secular. And the other 50% make up diverse religious categories like Buddhism, New Age, Sikhism, Islam, Evangelical, etc., etc. So then if we're looking at this 50%, and I'm going to talk about the others in future sermons, right? I'm going to focus on the secular today. If we're looking at this percentage of people in our, in our city who are secular, the question that we have to wrestle with is what does that mean? What does it mean that they're secular? What do they believe? How do they think? What do they value? The tragedy is in most of our churches, no one ever asks these questions. And so what happens is we end up doing mission in a way that we think will work, but that doesn't work because we don't actually understand the people we're trying to reach. So what does it mean that 33% or arguably 50% of Jundalup is secular? Who are this 50%? Well, our secular neighbors are not too different from Athens. They are not religious. They don't know the Bible. They never heard of Moses or Isaiah. They haven't read the Ten Commandments. They know nothing of clean or unclean foods. They've never heard the stories of Exodus or Samson or Daniel. They don't believe in one God. There's multiple, multiple beliefs. Their view of man and the spirit world is totally different. They have no clue who Jesus is. I've met people who thought that the word Jesus was just a cuss word. I have a pastor friend um, from over east who said to me, he had a secular guy approach him one time. Uh, they were friends. They had, I think they had met at a cafe. And the guy asked him, you know, was, was Jesus, everybody keeps talking about this Jesus guy. Was he born before or after World War I? I, I I'm trying to figure it out. My, my wife posted a thing on, on, on Facebook some years ago about, about Jesus' birth and Christmas. And one of her secular friends wrote her and said, she was like 22 years old. She was like, I never knew Christmas had anything to do. It's like, well, it has the word Christ? No clue, right? We're talking about a world that is so far removed from what you and I assume and consider to be common knowledge that if we think we're going to reach them without understanding them, we're fooling ourselves. So what does it mean to be secular today? What does it mean? What does it mean? How can we understand this? I, I want to give you guys a brief explanation. What I'm going to do now um, is dig into the worldview of the typical secular Western person. And I'm going to do this again in, in a few sermons. We'll, we'll look at, uh, at Buddhism and, and, and Islam. Because what I want to do is I want to show you what it looks like to identify those common grounds that can lead us into truth-seeking relationships with others that can lead us to the place where we can introduce them to Jesus, right? But I need to do this in a really, really simple way. So everything that I'm going to share with you guys today is very simplified because if it's not, I'll be here for three hours, and this is one of my favorite topics, so it would not be hard for me to be here for three hours. Um, so I've simplified it, but if anyone is interested and you want to learn more about what I'm sharing here today, I've written a very small electronic book. It's like 90 pages. I can email it to you for free. Just email me, marcostorres at adventist.org.au. Say, hey, I'm interested in the book, and I'll send it to you. 90 pages. You can read it in, in an hour. So, um, But here we go. All right. So the easiest way for me to explain to people what we are dealing with, when we what we're talking about when we talk about secular, modern Western secular culture today is... 
map out the history of how people have related to God. Three simple steps. The first one is what many philosophers term the pre-modern world. What is the pre-modern world? The pre-modern world refers to a society in which people believe that if they have to find truth or if they need to find truth, that they are going to find it in the church, in the clergy, or in the sacred text. That's a pre-modern society. Pre-modern societies still exist today. For example, Islamic countries classify as pre-modern. This has nothing to do with technology. It has to do with the way people perceive reality. If you're going to find truth, you're going to find it in the Ayatollah, you're going to find it in the mosque, you're going to find it in the Imam, you're going to find it in the Quran, right? That's pre-modern way of thinking. And Western countries like ours, like Australia, Europe, America, Canada, used to think this way way back in the day. If you were going to find truth, you were going to find it in the church, you were going to find it in the pastor, in the priest, or in the Bible. That's where truth was to be found. And so in a pre-modern society, there's certain assumptions that are made, and the promise of these assumptions is that if we pursue this truth together, eventually we're going to arrive at a paradise. The more people believe truth, the more people apply truth from, the, from God, from his church, from his word, we're going to eventually arrive at paradise. Well, there's a problem with the pre-modern worldview. The problem is that the church and the clergy brought about the Dark Ages and the Crusades and the Inquisition. And it wasn't just the Roman church. When the Protestants came around, they fought a bunch of wars and they killed a bunch of people. So the culture began to lose its confidence in, ha, huh, it doesn't seem like finding truth there is really working out for us. And around this time, the world began to move into what can be called the modern, wait, turn my thing on, the modern Phase. We went from the pre-modern phase to the modern phase. And in the modern phase of culture, the scientific revolution took place. And according to the scientific revolution, when the dust started to settle, the ideas that came out were these. Truth is no longer to be found in the church or the clergy or the sacred thing, text. All those things are false. Truth can only be found in science and in the scientific method and in reason. We're talking somewhere between 17 and 1800s here, where this stuff is really beginning to materialize. And it was coming into full fruition, actually, during Ellen White's day. It was sinking into the way people were seeing reality. The skeptics and those who worshipped reason as opposed to scripture. In pre-modern culture, it was all about faith. In modern culture, it was all about reason. You throw away religion because there's no testable empirical evidence to prove that God exists, and you only believe what you can measure. And of course, the skeptics were able to use the violence of the church to justify their move away from the church as the center of truth. And so as technology began to advance, there was this enthusiasm that took over the Western world. We are headed toward utopia. Look at these technological advancements. Look at the advancements in medicine. Look at the advancements in transportation. Look at the advancements in psychology and education. We are headed toward utopia. The future looks good. We've put God to the side. We're pursuing science and reason and evidence, and things are going great. But then, World War I happened. And the same advancements in science that brought us better medicine brought us weapons that could kill more people. And then World War II happened. 
And all of a sudden, we had an atomic bomb. And if we built enough of them, we could literally wipe out life on earth. You have to understand how massive this is for the way people think. Prior to World War II, prior to the atomic bomb, no one ever perceived of the earth as something we could destroy. Like, what are you going to do, destroy it with arrows and, and boulders? Of course not. But now you have these atomic bombs, and it's like, wait a minute. We can actually annihilate ourselves. And science did that. The science that promised utopia has now brought us the apocalypse. We have the atomic bomb. We have chemical warfare. We've just fought two of the bloodiest wars in history. Science failed. So in the aftermath of World War II, a new way of perceiving the world began to take center stage. It's what philosophers called the postmodern. Postmodernism was cynical. It saw that religion had promised paradise through truth, and it failed. Science had promised paradise through truth, and it had also failed. So maybe, the postmodern thinkers began to suggest, the problem with religion and science is that they both claim to have the truth. When in fact, there turns out to be no such thing as truth. It cannot be found. Both of them promised utopia, and they failed to deliver precisely because there is no such thing as truth. And so this idea began to seep into the culture. And you might have heard phrases like, your truth is your truth and my truth is mine. Or phrases like, hey, that works for you. If Jesus works for you, that's great, but not for me. This is postmodernism in full effect. Why? Because truth had failed. But it's a little bit more profound than that. Truth hadn't simply failed to deliver paradise. Truth had also delivered the opposite of paradise. The church, for example, used claims of truth to murder people. So you think of the Crusades, you think of the Salem witch trials. The church used its claims of truth to murder people. And science also used truth claims to subjugate people. For example, nowadays this is kind of a foreign idea. But if you lived back in the early 1900s, there was a common scientific claim that was defended in scientific journals. And the claim was that people of European descent were more evolved than people of African descent. And that therefore people of African descent were less human than people of European descent. And this was used to justify slavery. And science was used to back this idea up. So it wasn't simply that science had failed to deliver paradise, it had actually given us the opposite of paradise. So the culture begins to think, the problem is this idea of truth. Truth, I want you to pay very close attention here because this is really, really, really important in understanding the way people think. Truth, according to the culture, as, as these progressions are taking place, truth is the problem. Truth leads to oppression. Anytime someone claims to have the absolute truth, it is the basic building block of oppression. The church did it. Science did it. Empire has done it. And so if we're ever going to get somewhere good, we have to get rid of the notion of truth. And this idea swept through Western society. And so what happened? People no longer attended church. People no longer read the Bible. People no longer trusted in big truth claims like God or salvation or paradise. These stories had failed. These stories had caused suffering. And so what this means on a practical level, 
is that people aren't looking for church and they're not looking for truth. Let me make it a little bit more personal for us Adventists. By and large, there's always exceptions. You'll always find an exception. I'm talking to general by and large themes of our culture today. People are not wondering why the Sabbath was changed to Sunday. Because if Sabbath is Sabbath to you, it's you. And if it's Sunday is Sabbath to the other person, it's for them. And they're both true. And it doesn't matter because there's no such thing as truth. Just do what works for you. People aren't curious, particularly within the postmodern worldview, they aren't curious about is it creation or is it evolution. Modernists care about that question. Postmodernists don't. They don't care if the world was created in seven literal days or if it evolved. It just doesn't matter. Maybe it was both. Who knows? And our elaborate studies on prophecy are easily dismissed as, hey, that works for you. Great. Doesn't work for me. And so when we think about the cultural context this way, it reminds me of the words of Jake Mulder. The church today is perfectly calibrated for a world that no longer exists. The church today is perfectly calibrated for a world that no longer exists. See, here's the thing. There was a time in the history of our church where most of your neighbors were either Christian who went to church or Christians who didn't go to church. And if they weren't Christian, they at least believed that there was some truth out there to be found. They understood church language. They understood church culture. But today, the world has moved so incredibly far from that that people no longer believe truth is out there to be found. And so when they are spiritually hungry, when they are spiritually thirsty, when they are searching for answers, they aren't coming here. In fact, very few people today will ever set foot in a church building. Our flyers and brochures don't attract them. And we spend our time answering questions they are simply not asking. Yes, there are exceptions but they're very rare. The general trend today is people just don't think about church. Now, there was a time where people didn't go to church because they were mad at it. Oh, the church, you know, I'm angry, you know. That's not what's going on today. People don't come to church because they're angry at it. People don't come to church because it doesn't even register in their radar. It would be like me asking you, why haven't you visited your local Sikh temple? And you say, well, I drive by and it looks pretty and then I see a nice bird and I forget it exists. That's how people think of church today. It doesn't register in their radar as a thing to search for, as a thing to pursue, as a thing to consider. They're not angry at it. They just don't think about it. And because there's no such thing as truth, What it means now is that everybody has their own truth. And what that means is that society is fragmented. So when people ask me, Marcus, what do secular people believe? It's not really a question that you can answer. There is no core beliefs of secularism. The, 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 if there's one core belief of secularism, it's make your own truth. So there's no real way to identify this is what all secular people believe and this is how we can reach them. No, they're, they're so different. They're so fragmented. People simply believe whatever they want to construct. And in many ways, this is what it means to be secular today. In many ways, as we look at the city of Jundalup and we think roughly 50% of the people in this city are secular, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. And the question is, how do you reach them? 
See, because we have two options as a church. We can go on the offensive and begin attacking all these cultural trends. Or we can do what Paul did. We can search for the evidence of God's presence, even in these movements and trends in the world. Because God is always active and he's always working with people and with cultures and with generations to reach them. We can search for the evidence of his presence in the culture and then use that evidence as a bridge to connect with our city. Now, is there a lot more to be said about secularism, postmodernism? Yes. In fact, postmodernism is kind of old, you guys. The world is moving toward metamodernism now. I'm not even going to get into that because you guys are probably like, oh, that's enough. <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is we can no longer assume that people hold to the assumptions that they once did. There was a time where you could walk into someone's home who hadn't been to church in your neighborhood, and you could say, why don't you come to church? Do you have a Bible? Are you reading it? And the person might say, oh, yeah, I've got one over there, but I haven't read it in a while. All right, let's open it. Let's start exploring. All right, let's do it. You know, there was a time where that was a general trend. You could do that with almost anyone. Not anymore. The world has changed in overwhelmingly gargantuan ways. And if we continue to do evangelism that was designed for a world that was mostly Christian in a world that is mostly post-Christian, we're just going to keep failing. So then, how do we reach a postmodern secular culture, right? That's the, that's the magic question. How do we do this? How do we reach our city? Wow, there are a lot of things I can say about this, but like I said, I'm going to keep it simple today. So I just want to focus on three simple points. I'm going to begin by saying you're never going to reach the emerging secular culture like we have in our cities today with big programs and with flyers and with international speakers. Why? Because all that stuff is suspicious to them. Not only that, but because the culture is so fragmented there's no way that you can create a flyer that will attract all of them. Usually in marketing, that's what you do. You find a common trend within a people that you want to reach. You, you use that trend in your marketing and you can get a big number of them. But when it comes to secular beliefs, there's no common trends. They're all over the place. So you can't really market to them. Which means that whatever reaching them looks like, it looks way more like personal relationships than big programs. But then what do those relationships look like? How do you engage them? There's three lessons that we learned from Paul. I'm going to explore these, and then we're going to re-explore these, looking at our Buddhist neighbors, our Muslim neighbors. And by the third time, it should sink in how these actually work and how you can then begin doing it. Because there's no way I can cover everything in a sermon series. We'd be here for forever, and it probably most of it will probably go over your head. You're only ever really going to get this when you start doing it. So we're going to see how these steps apply. In different scenarios, postmodern scenario, Buddhist scenario, Muslim scenario, and then I'm going to send you guys out there to do it. Fun stuff. Okay. First thing that we see from Paul. I've already mentioned this before. I'm going to mention it again. We got to find evidence of God within the culture that we're trying to reach. The reason, I think I got that on the slide. Yeah, yeah. First, find evidence of God's presence within the culture. Right? Don't begin by assuming, look at all these postmoderns, these heathens. Let me find everything that's wrong with them so I can make a DVD series about how evil they are. We do that a lot in the church. It's actually really heartbreaking. We need to believe God is already at work in this society. He's already at work in this generation. He's already at work with these, with these people. And, and, and look, what are the ways in which God is already working among them? Those then become the bridges into conversation. It's like I said with my Muslim friend. We have a similar view of health and what we should eat, put in our bodies, and what we shouldn't eat. Right? We have this similar view. He might be Muslim, he might worship a different God, he might have different beliefs, but there's the evidence within his worldview, there's a, there's a truth of God that, that made it in there. It becomes a bridge. And so I engaged him on that conversation. I said, hey, you guys don't eat that. I, I don't either. And, 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 we, and we started discussing, we started conversing, we became good friends. I would not use that with a secular person because it wouldn't work. 
It's not a similar, the bridges are going to be different, right? So find evidence of God's presence within the culture. You have a secular friend. You have someone who falls into this broad category we've been talking about this morning. In your relationship, in your friendship, in your interactions with them, you're praying, first of all, to the Holy Spirit, and second, you're actively searching through your conversations, where is the evidence that God's already at work in this person's life? So here's one example. The reason why secular people today reject truth is because truth claims are the common denominator in oppression, whether it's scientific or religious. And I gave you guys some examples of what that looks like. And the interesting thing is that when you look at the great controversy narrative, it actually makes a very similar claim that Satan can use things that are very, very true and just flip a switch in there somewhere for his own devices, right? He can use truth to his advantage to continue his war against God, which means that in some ways what this culture is protesting is something that Scripture itself protests, that it's not enough to be theologically accurate. We also have to reflect the heart of God and how we're sharing that truth. So in many ways, we can affirm that oppressing and hurting others in the name of truth, which is spiritual abuse, is unjust. We can actually celebrate this with the person who is skeptical about truth claims. This is a bridge because God is a God of justice. God is a God of compassion. God is a God of love. And we can celebrate this. This can, be, this can actually be a bridge into conversation with people. I don't know how many times I've been talking with secular friends who've been sharing this with me. And, you know, they'll say, oh, the church, you know, the inquisitions and the crusades and all these horrible things that people have done in the name of God. I just don't want anything to do with it. And I give them a little sample of Daniel 7. And it's like, oh, wow, are you serious? You know why? Because most people, most secular people are used to Christians going on the defensive. They put their fists up. What do you mean? The church is great. There's nothing wrong with it. And all of a sudden, they've met a Christian who's like, actually, in Daniel 7, God talks about how the church itself would become the main tool of warfare against, against truth and love. What? Are you serious? Yeah. Oh. There's a bridge that's been created. All of a sudden, we can now engage in conversation because they realize this person actually gets where I'm coming from, and we can explore and deepen our friendship. So find evidence of God within the culture. Don't waste your time trying to find everything that's bad with the culture. I'm going to save you all the time right now. There's a gazillion things wrong with it. There you go. Now you don't need to waste your time, <laughs> you know, peeling back all those layers. There's a gazillion things wrong with it. There, you got it. It's done. Now go and search for evidence of God's presence in there and use that as the bridge to connect with people. This is what Paul does with the unknown God. Second, reframe our explanation of truth to address their concerns, not ours. We can't assume that the things that we find interesting, people find interesting. Or the questions that we like to debate, everybody else out there is wondering what it is. I have never once met or studied the Bible with a single secular person that really cared about the big battle between Sabbath and Sunday. Never once. I shared a Sabbath with them nine times out of ten. Oh, I like it. Cool. Moving on. And I see this because in so much of our evangelism, it's like, you know, history's greatest hoax revealed, Sabbath changed to Sunday. And that might work in some context. I'm not knocking it because some people do have that question. But when we're dealing with postmodernists, they just don't really care about that question. But when you explain the Sabbath to them and what the Sabbath represents and what it means, hey, great, I like it. And it's done. They're ready to move on to something else. So don't assume that people are interested in parsing the things that we've gotten used to parsing. People today have different questions. So reframe. If you frame truth, this is a big thing. If you frame truth as right versus wrong, you lost them. Why? Because they see that as oppression. Is that, is, is, is that thing that they see accurate or inaccurate is beside the point. The point is that's how they see it. And your job isn't to fight about that. Your job is to say, okay, that's how they see it. Now, how can I approach it in a way that's actually going to be redemptive? If you frame truth as right versus wrong, you lost them. They share an opinion. They share an idea. They share a, 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 a thought. Oh, no, that's error. That's false. 
good luck with them ever showing up to your Bible study again. We do this a lot sometimes in church. I've been in Sabbath schools, you know, where it's just, you get into these big debates. And that might work for us and among us. It doesn't work in this context. When you frame truth as right versus wrong, it's basically top down. I have all the right, you have all the wrong. It's a recipe for, all right, cool. I'll see you, maybe never. I'm leaving. Instead, what I found is that when you frame truth as a thing that can actually heal, that's really powerful. So it's not a debate of right and wrong. It's, hey, did you know truth, the truth that God has to reveal to us isn't an oppressive truth. It's a truth that can actually heal us. It can heal our societies. It can heal our world. And that truth isn't really just an, a set of ideas. It's Jesus. And look at what Jesus did when he walked the earth. He healed. Truth is healing. It's a different framework that you're using. And it's really effective. Finally, what we see is that it turns out that God's fingerprints are found within the very thing we might have been tempted to condemn. That's the key, you guys. That's the key. Whether it's a postmodern, whether it's a Muslim, whether it's a Buddhist, you're looking for the fingerprints of God and you're building bridges with people. And deeply nested in this is the most important lesson without which we'll never reach this city. And I've already mentioned it. It's relationships. This is very true of our world today. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This is why big, mass evangelism events don't work with this demographic. And I'm not knocking those. They still work with some, well, maybe not during a pandemic scenario, but, you know, when the pandemic ends and you sort of go back to big events, there are still people that connect with that. They're generally never, ever postmoderns. Some of them are modernists. Most of them tend to be pre-modern. But especially with the postmodern culture, which is what most secular people are today, you're not going to convince them or connect with them through big mass evangelism events that are just communicating information. Because what they're actually looking for is community. What they're looking for is friendship. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So if you want to reach the city, here's my invitation for you guys, a practical invitation for you to think about this week as I wrap this up. If you want to reach the city, forget about the city. Just make a friend. Love them, understand them, care for them, listen to them, pray for them. Adapt your presentation of the gospel to ways they will understand. And be patient. I have a lot of secular friends that I've, you know, made friends with over the years. I sit down with them. We talk about God. We talk about faith. We talk about existence. Sometimes they say really weird stuff, you guys. You know what I do? I don't say nothing. <laughs> I'm just like, eh, by my turn. What's the point, right? This Bible is very clear. The Holy Spirit's the one who leads us into all truth. And I know that if I'm there, I'm a presence, I'm loving, I'm caring. I'm not shoving my ideas down their throat. That in time, the Holy Spirit will lead them to the truth that he needs them to understand. Love people. Be connected to people deeply. The biggest tragedy of Adventism when it comes to mission is most people, the longer they are Seventh-day Adventists, the more and more every single friend in their sphere of influence is also a Seventh-day Adventist. You know who else that happens with? Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. They isolate themselves from everyone else and surround themselves only with people who think like they do and people who like what they like and people who believe what they believe. They create an echo chamber. This isn't how you do mission. This isn't how God did mission. How did God do mission? From tucked away up in heaven somewhere? No, he came and he built his home here in our neighborhood. We have to be incarnational with people. All right, I'm going to summarize this. I'm going to summarize this. And again, if you feel like today's sermon, it, was, it made sense, but there's stuff that didn't fully click, that's okay. It was a lot. So in the next few sermons, as we look at how this works in different contexts, 
by the, by, by the third one, it'll fully click. Believe you me. All right. So we looked at lesson number two. Don't let your provocation turn into condemnation. Let it become fuel for respectful missional engagement. And the three supporting points, find evidence of God within the culture. Spend time listening and thinking of ways you can reframe your explanations of truth so that they make sense to your listeners instead of scaring them off. And number three, remember, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, oh, wow, that's a lot. I don't know if I can do all that, Pastor. Two things. Number one, didn't you just sing this morning, God, all of me is yours? Wasn't that the song? <laughs> That's what it looks like, right? But jokes aside, it is too much. It is too much. Missional living is too much. Which is why, as great as these practical tips are, the number one thing you need to do every single morning is say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. If you do this on your own, in your flesh, you're going to burn out. But when the Holy Spirit is in you and animating you and giving you a hunger and a desire to know your city and to know people and to reach people, it doesn't burn you out. Because it's not your strength that's doing it. It's God's Spirit. Pray for the Holy Spirit. I'm going to close with the end of the story in Acts 17. You can look at it there if that's too small on your Bibles. Verse 32. When they, this is talking about the philosophers, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And, hey, it doesn't matter how great of a missionary you are, some people are going to sneer at you. That's okay. That's part of the journey. Some of them sneered, but others, this is the magic, others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. The gospel found a root in one of early Greece's most pagan cities. Because Paul met them where they were and reached them with love. How would you like an Adventist Bible study set designed for millennials, postmoderns, and unchurched seekers. The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture is a one-of-a-kind Bible study set that I've designed to communicate the story of redemption to unchurched generations. With 30 chapters in total, you'll get to discover the gospel, prophecy, and even end-time events in a fresh, meaningful, and relevant way. To learn more about this and get your own copy, head over to thestorychurchproject.com.